Hey there, little onions. Carrie here from the Editing Bay. It is uh, Saturday, August 28th, and uh, I just uh, received a call from Ross, and he let me know that there are, in fact, five Mondays in August, not four. So uh, it is not technically September yet, and so it's not technically time to start Ross's birthday month picks. However, I thought in order to give us a little time to get ahead, I thought it would be fun if we aired a rebroadcast of our second ever kicking and streaming episode in which we covered Independence Day. You know, it's on theme, it's alien related, it's also one of Ross's favorite alien movies, but when he came up with that list, we'd already covered it. It is a very rough to listen to episode, guys, just because it sounds so different. You know, we were babies then, so this episode is going to be rated T for Tin Can. And uh, I've gone over it and I've remastered it using uh, what I've learned in the time since that episode first aired. I've uh, cut down on a lot of the mouth noises and a lot of the dead air. But that being said, there's still a lot of mic noise and I edited a little bit for time there at the end when Ross was going on and on about the Clinton administration. Uh, But for the most part, the original episode itself is totally intact. So please enjoy this rebroadcast of one of our favorite episodes, Independence Day, or How I Learned the Difference Between Patriotism and Nationalism. I hope those of you who have been uh, longtime fans will enjoy revisiting this one, and I've done my very best to make it listenable now in the year 2021, so I hope you all enjoy, and I'll see you again at the end, all right? planet earth first set foot upon the moon <laughs> july 1969 <laughs> it came in peace for all mankind back to kicking and streaming where you had nothing to better to do anyway so you're listening to this <laughs> i'm carrie and i'm ross and this week we're going to be covering the blockbuster 1996 film independence day <laughs> god bless oh, Independence god. Day. <laughs> so tell me why you wanted to do this movie for your choice your very first choice well it was from the year i was born 1996 and uh it was the biggest movie of the year can i just say something you know me. I'm obsessed with disaster because, number one, I'm obsessed with history. And number two, I'm obsessed with humanity. I think one of the most important themes in the film, man is not on top when it comes to the universe. Even with something fictitious like this, you know, we can't prove that there's life beyond Earth at this point. But we're to that point mm-hmm. as far as technology goes in the world. 2019, we can prove that there used to be life on Mars. It's terrifying. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely terrifying. Because what happened to the Martians? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a movie that's always excited me since childhood. Uh, I know I'm rambling, but I just think it's really, really well written. I think the cast does a fantastic job. 
And it's just one of those movies where you come away 100% thoroughly entertained. Like, yeah, it's one of those movies where I don't have, I wouldn't say I don't have a single flaw to point out in it, but it's just one of those where I honestly do not care. You know, like right. it, it hits all of the bases for me. This is a long movie. It's a two and a half hour it movie. Is, it is indeed. And we're going to have to stop ourselves from talking about every little detail. I know. People don't have all the time in the world, yes. <laughs> including me. And it's hot in here. Why don't you give us some quick facts about Independence Day 1996? So, yeah, you were right. It smashed all of the box office records that year, all of which were previously held by Jurassic Park in 1993. Another movie that Jeff Goldblum... Jeff Goldblum, the <laughs> crown jewel of the 90s. <laughs> like that's Yeah, exactly. Like He got his start in the 80s, so maybe he kind of belongs to the 80s, but I want to claim him because... We made him a sex symbol. Yeah. <laughs> and we made him a meme. Life, uh, uh, uh finds, finds a way. way. <laughs> and we're the ones responsible for putting him in apartment.com commercials, so. Like, yeah, Trivago, apartment.com. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen him in a Zillow ad. There is a literal statue, a gigantic statue of Jeff Goldblum from, as his Jurassic Park character, you know, leaned over like Burt Reynolds in the Playgirl fold. <laughs> And it's in London, and it's right by the London Eye. It's gigantic. Look it up, folks. I'm not kidding. Jeff Goldblum statue, London. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> People just sit on benches and look at it. Like, Wouldn't you? I know, right? J- Jeff Goldblum is one of the many all-star names in this film. We love an ensemble movie, don't we? As, I... a, as a culture, we love an ensemble movie. We sure do. All the big names. I mean, hey, Will Smith... Mm-hmm. At the height of his career, really. Mm-hmm. Fresh Prince was in its final days, I think, by that time. You got Vivica Fox. Hey, girl. <laughs> we miss you in Indiana. We know you were here for like five minutes and then left. We can still claim you. <laughs> Who else we got in this movie? Bill Pullman as President Thomas Whitmore. Mm. There's Randy Quaid as Russell Case. He was in... Uh... <laughs> the less popular Quaid brother. <laughs> brothers dennis and randy they're both they're brothers yeah randy's dennis's older brother what? did you have no idea i had no idea You're kidding <laughs> it is morning you wake up you greet your loved ones you grab the morning paper and although it seems like any ordinary day isn't for one extraordinary reason. A historic and unprecedented event has occurred. The question of whether or not we are alone in the universe has been answered. This is so cool. More ships have just arrived over India, England, and Germany. I really don't think they flew 90 billion light years to come down here and start a fight. We've got to stop them! They're using our own satellites against us. The clock is ticking. We must launch a counteroffensive with a full nuclear strike. Over American soil. If we don't strike soon, there may not be much of an America left to defend. Being exterminated. Let's kick the tires and light the fires. We're looking at worldwide destruction in the next 
36 hours. Oh, you can't hit nothing! An award winner, this film, isn't it? Yeah, it uh, won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. And uh, less prestigiously, millennials like you and I voted it our favorite movie at the Kids' Choice Awards. (laughs) Remember the Kids' Choice Awards? Yeah. It's like the Oscars, but you don't have to stay up as late. The Kids' Choice Awards. Because you have school the next morning. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) This movie had an insane promotional campaign, including an ad from the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl ad. I forgot you showed me the Super Bowl ad. With, like, the veiled threat at the end. Yeah. (laughs) The Super Bowl. It may be your last. (laughs) Like, holy shit. If you haven't seen this movie, turn this off right now and watch the movie. Do not listen to this if you haven't watched the movie. Or whatever. No, please don't go. (laughs) You know what? Listen anyway. She's right. (laughs) We want you here. No, but we we get a huge exposition dump at the beginning of this movie. Mm -hmm. And to prevent from getting bogged down in details, we should probably just go through it very quickly. Mm. What is the acronym for the alien research facility? It's SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Right. Mm -hmm. After we get some shots of the moon and some very Star Wars-esque shots of the spaceship heading in towards Earth, this is like the busiest day of this research team's life because... Previously, there has been no communication from other life in the universe. Previously, they've been asleep. Yes. Or playing golf. <laughs> literally asleep. Yeah. No, no technician at SETI has anything to do because they're literally just waiting. Everybody thinks that the equipment is malfunctioning when it's reading these signals. Maybe it's another Russian spy job. No one's certain if it's real. It's a big enough deal that they have to wake everybody up. They wake up the, the SETI supervisor who's mm-hmm. like, this better be important. This isn't an insanely beautiful woman I'm hanging out. Sir, I, I, I think you should listen to this. We have to get Robert Loja on the scene. General William Gray. Yeah. <laughs> at Space Command. Mm-hmm. At, at Pentagon. the Pentagon. Space Command makes me think that Buzz Lightyear's going to be there. Yeah, General Gray. We estimate that it has a diameter of over 550 kilometers and a mass roughly one-fourth the size of our moon. What the hell is it? Meteor? No, sir. No, definitely not. How do you know? Well, sir, it's slowing down. It's what? So, basically what we learn from all of the, the smart people, all, all the scientists... <laughs> all those people at Atlantic Command and Space Command <laughs> at the Pentagon. This thing is inbound, it is fast, and it is huge. This is a civilization <laughs> traveling through space. <laughs> 
So this is the beginning of us starting to meet a lot of characters at once. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we'll just go briefly through each scene, kind of introduce you to who our uh, our heroes are. And the one thing I really like is that we kind of go all over America. This film does a great job of expressing not only the team effort that America is going to have to bring together, but the entire world. First, we meet President Thomas Whitmore Mm -hmm. Bill Pullman in the White House. And he's on the phone with his wife, the First Lady. Marilyn Whitmore. (laughs) She's in Los Angeles. You might remember Mary McDonald from Donnie Darko. That's like the only other thing I can... She's the mom in Donnie Darko. She's also the president in Battlestar Galactica. I have a good noodle star for you. Oh, you do? Yeah. If you can tell me the name of the child actress playing Patricia Whitmore. Mae Whitman. Oh my god! I am just learning for the first time that that was Mae Whitman. Yeah, I know. she's so little. And if if you don't know who I'm talking about, she was in Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Mm-hmm. She's currently on Fox, I think, mm-hmm. in the show Good Girls with Christina Hendricks. We also meet Connie. She is Whitmore's chief of staff, mm-hmm. and I love her because. Whitmore's just getting up in the scene where we meet him, Mm. and he walks past Connie, who has already been showered, eaten, dressed, primped, and has a newspaper in her hand. She is a 90s power woman. She is, and I love her. (laughs) I do, yeah. I love how he wanders past her, and he's like, Connie, you're up awfully early this morning. They're not attacking your policies. They're attacking your age. Addressing Congress... Whitmore seems less like the president and more like the orphan child Oliver asking, please, sir, I'd like some more. And she just wants to get right down to business. She's like, okay, we got to get into the criticisms. We got to protect your image. Because Whitmore's presidency is not in a very solid place. Yeah, he's coming to the, it's it's an election year, actually, funnily enough. And you can see on the televisions in the background, he's like, they elected a warrior and they got a wimp. In the real timeline of things, I guess Whitmore's supposed to replace Bush in this sense instead of Clinton. (laughs) Um, And so everybody, people are kind of like lacking confidence in his ability to lead. Oh, just you wait. We flash to Cliffside Park. Who do we meet? Julius and David Levinson. Yes. Judd Hirsch and Jeff Goldblum, (laughs) respectively. David is divorced in his probably late 30s, Mm -hmm. and he's very close with his father. I could listen to Judd Hirsch talk all day. You could. As Julius. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I could. I most certainly could. Will Will you grace us with a little bit of your Julius impression? Listen, David, I've been meaning to talk with you. It's nice that you see me so much now. All I'm saying, it's been what? Four years? Still wearing wedding band? Three, four, get divorced. Come on, move on. This is not healthy. I don't want you to catch cold. I love this. See if they got those pens that they give away. Dad, what? Checkmate. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. This This is not checkmate. See you tomorrow, pal. Just hold on. This is not checkmate. We learn that David is very intelligent. He rides a bike everywhere. Mm -hmm. He's very environmentally conscious, loves recycling, loves taking care of the planet. I like that. If David Levinson was real, he would be screaming at us right now. Which case in point, after he beats Julius in the game of chess, Mm -hmm. we flash to where he works. At Compact Cable. That's what it's called. (laughs) Cable company. Everything is pandemonium because all of their customers are experiencing service interruption. Maybe it's because of that strange signal that SCTI picked up (laughs) earlier. He gets in, everybody's running around like a chicken with their head cut off, trying to figure out the problem. One guy's on the phone with a customer and going, I know, I love X-Files too. (laughs) 
which is the first of a great many awesome sci-fi references. Absolutely. Everybody's upset and trying to fix the problem, and David's just mad because no one's recycling. And Marty... What's the, uh, what's the big emergency? It started this morning. Every station's making like it's the 1950s. We got static, we got snow, all kinds of distortions. Nobody knows. What the hell are you doing? There's a reason we have bins labeled recycle. What the hell is going on? My God in heaven. So sue me, David. We got a problem. Harvey Firestein. Harvey Firestein. Your beloved gay uncle from Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> or your beloved female impersonator from Hairspray. Marty does not have time for David and his shit. No. <laughs> uh, Marty is like, oh, but David, what's the point of having a beep if you're not going to turn it on? And David's like, I was ignoring you. Like, who wouldn't? <laughs> and something seems to be missing in their connection <laughs> at the cable company. Maybe it's the satellite that crashed into the big mass in the sky earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we saw that satellite just heading towards the ship, mm -hmm. and then just in very wily coyote fashion, there's this soft <laughs> as it disintegrates into the side of the ship. Yes. So David starts trying to figure out what's going on with the signal. Mm -hmm. This is where we cut to Imperial Valley, California, and we meet the Case family. I always remember this family as living in a trailer. They don't. They live in a camper. Yes. There's not even room to do a cartwheel. <laughs> Which yes. could you, there's only two of us, but could you imagine if it was dad, you, me, and another sibling living in a camper? No. No, I'd kill. No, I really couldn't. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I'd kill you. There's not room <laughs> enough for the two of us in this closet. We learned that Russ was a vet in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, He's he, got three kids. He has three kids. He's got Miguel. Alicia and Troy. And Troy. Mm -hmm. Miguel, uh, you should recognize Miguel from Donnie Darko as well. He's the kid in the rabbit suit. So many intermovie connections between these actors. I love it. I know. We learned that Russ is a crop duster and he's also an alcoholic. By profession. By profession. <laughs> Miguel has to go find him because he's dusted the wrong field. He's flown off and dusted the wrong field. It's the wrong field, you idiot. Lucas's farm's on the other side of town. And Russ has the gall to look at him and go, Are you sure? <laughs> Randy. What are you doing, Randy? <laughs> you know, this is one of those situations where the parent is not parenting and the oldest kid kind of gets stuck with the short end of the stick. Mm -hmm. It's very sad. Yes. We also learned that Russ has a bit of a reputation in the community for his stories about being abducted by aliens. Hmm. I wonder why that is. <laughs> Then we flash to Los Angeles and we meet the most gorgeous blended family in all of L.A. We have Will Smith playing Captain Stephen Hiller, mm -hmm. Vivica Fox playing his girlfriend, Jasmine... Jasmine Dubrow. Mm, very nice. Mm -hmm. And Jasmine's son, Dylan Dubrow. Dylan Dubrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they live in L.A. Steve's on leave for the 4th of July weekend and they all have plans to be a family and to give Dylan a good fireworks show. Because he's in the Marines. <laughs> Are you going to be okay? You it's hot enough in here already. I'm worried about your temperature. I'm gonna bag me an army guy. No, Meg, you want the Marines. Um, I love how Dylan is the only one comfortable with the fact that there are aliens outside. Because Will Smith goes out to get the paper. And he's just looking at the news and everything, shaking his head. And then he realizes everyone around him is freaking out. And he looks up, and there's the spaceship. So we've got, you know, we've got basically, we've got our main storylines going. The events of the rest of the movie are really set off by David realizing the source of the signal disruption is the alien ships. 
You hear me tell you that the signal hidden in the satellite feed is slowly recycling down to extinction? Not really. Countdown. Countdown. We can't get to my David! Uh, it's like a chess. First, you strategically position your pieces, then when the timing's right, you strike. David is like, he's been the newest on all of this. Like, <laughs> David's the one that cracks the code first. Like, yes. he's the one who realizes exactly what is going to go down once everybody's in place. Mm-hmm. So he's got to get a hold of Connie, his ex-wife. <laughs> Constant Spano, White House Chief of Staff. <laughs> I would probably be divorced from the White House Chief of Staff, too. We have it in the West Wing. Mm -hmm. Leo gets divorced in, like, episode one. (laughs) Like, am I right? (laughs) Like, come on. Connie doesn't have time for it, though, because the president's in the middle of addressing the nation. And that's where that brilliant cut happens, because Whitmore's explaining what's happening how long it's going to take for them to get here, Mm -hmm. etc. And he's announcing the cities that they're flying over and targeting. Mm -hmm. And he says, Remain in the White House as we attempt to establish communication. If you feel compelled to leave these cities, please do so in an orderly fashion. Cut to pandemonium in the streets of New York. I was worried about the police horse. <laughs> like, Shut up. <laughs> there's cars crashing. People are screaming and looting. But there's one police horse in the middle of it all. And I'm like, no, don't hurt the police horse. Back in Los Angeles, Steve is being called back to the base. Mm-hmm. And Jasmine's super mad about it. Why are you acting like this? Why? That's why. She goes over to the window and throws open the curtain. She's like, that's why. (laughs) With a 15 mile long spaceship in the air. And, you know, he's a soldier. He has to go. Exactly. He doesn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. They need him. And he eventually charms her. This is where we see Will Smith at like his peak charm. Is it the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? This is Captain Stephen Hiller, United States Marine Corps. Damn right. (laughs) And the way they are to each other is so sweet. I know. I, I love them. I love the And I just, the chemistry between them specifically, like, they just do such a good job. He had really good chemistry with that kid, too, because that kid was on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air yeah. with him. But, I mean, this honestly was such a smart casting decision. Uh, the Case family is also pulling up roots. Mm-hmm. Miguel gets all his siblings in the camper, and they're going to leave without Russ. <laughs> yes. Because where is Russ, Ross? In, in the county lockup. <laughs> For papering City Hall with leaflets about the invaders. Exactly. I was kidnapped by space aliens ten years ago. They did all kinds of experiments on me. They've been studying it for years, finding out our weaknesses. We've got to stop them. They're going to kill us all. They fully intended to leave their land without Russ. Exactly. (laughs) But Russ got a ride home. It's okay. Literally, he gets out of the car. Miguel's behind the wheel of the camper. He's trying to go. Yeah. <laughs> Russell's waving his arms. You read my mind! And he's like, fuck. <laughs> they were fully prepared. You're right. They were fully prepared to leave his ass behind in what could have potentially been the end of the world. Yeah. Before we move on, I'm just going to give a little shout out to Miguel for saving his sister from being coerced into sex by that greasy dude. This could be our last night on Earth. You don't want to die a virgin, do you? <laughs> He pulls open the door. Come on, we're going. (laughs) So now we're on the El Toro base. This Mm -hmm. is where Steve's been called back. And we meet his buddy, 
Jimmy. Played by Harry Connick Jr., your favorite New Orleans jazz singer. This is where we learn that Steve wants to fly with NASA. It's like his dream. Yeah, he's always wanted to fly in a space show. And when he comes to his locker, his acceptance letter or rejection letter is sitting in the locker and he makes Jimmy read it to him. Mm-hmm. Rejected. Very sad. But there's good news. He's going to ask Jasmine to marry him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just love them. I, I know. Just do. But like Jimmy being a little dick and he's like, Man, you know, I really like Jasmine. You know that, right? Man, you're never going to get to fly the space shuttle if you marry a stripper. to Vivica Fox slaying a stage in a lacy red lingerie and number. And paying attention to her in the strip joint because they're all watching the coverage. Everybody's glued to the television. Which, I'm sorry, if aliens are invading, go home to your family. Exactly. Why, Why are, are you in the bar? <laughs> we briefly meet Tiffany, mm-hmm. also works there. She's going to go join the people at the top of the skyscraper. But Vivica Fox is like, no, please don't go. It's not safe. Like, a sensical person in an alien invasion. Yes. But, like, people are on television on top of these buildings partying. Straight partying. They are so glad the aliens have arrived. Like, everybody is so excited to get beamed. Meanwhile, two people who are not excited to get beamed, in Washington, D.C., Julius and David are arriving in Julius's More car. More like Maryland trying to get into D.C. I love that shot. Everybody is headed in the opposite direction. Alien spaceship. Julius and David just puttering down the empty lane going into D.C. Arguing like an old married couple. I love the car conversation on the way into D.C. Look at these, look at these people. Look. Huh? Vulsus. They take and then they go. They're going. They're going faster than we are. Look at this. Well, we're in the fast I, lane. I can't go fast. They're cutting me off yet. No one's cutting you off. We're going to get a ticket. getting in front of me. I can't go any faster. All right, all right. I don't want to argue. I don't want to argue. Shh, shh, shh. Let's just get there as quickly as What's possible. What's the rush? Huh? You think we'll get to Washington and won't be there? <laughs> like, it's just, it's perfect. I just, I love their nitpicky relationship with one another. Like, there's a crisis going on and you two are nitpicking about little shit. David has convinced Julius to drive him from New Jersey to Washington, D.C. To the White House. Because Connie won't take his calls and he has information. Yeah, and she's like, my ex-husband, he's just paranoid, (laughs) but he's a genius too. (laughs) They pull up to the White House and Julius leans over and says, you want to ring the bell or should I? (laughs) (laughs) And David's like, no need, because I have this bullshit technology that allows me to pinpoint Connie's exact position in the White House. Yeah, fucking right, David. GPS technology nowadays is not that good. He calls Connie. He's like, go to the window. And she looks out the window and there they are. Standing at the the north gate of the White House. How does he do that? How does he do that? (laughs) So she pulls them into the White House. Exactly. And while this is all going on, the government has arranged for this plane to go up. And it's a helicopter. It's a this helicopter to it. And it's it's a call out to close encounters of the third kind. Is it? Yeah, because that's how they communicate with the aliens in close encounters. Yeah, they use this light system. And the aliens actually figure out how to communicate back. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. They call the, it's a non-military helicopter and its code name is Welcome Wagon. <laughs> Welcome indeed. <laughs> <laughs> they blow that shit up. And the government immediately goes, oh, wow, everything, everybody was right all along. We should probably get out of here. <laughs> and only then does a government mandated evacuation happen. Not hours ago when they first arrived. 
Connie escorts Julius and David into the White House, and this is where we start to learn that David and the president have some history. They don't get along. They don't. They don't get along. I'm telling you, we're wasting time. He's not going to listen to me. We should go. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he listen? Because last time I saw him, we, uh, we got into a fight. You walked in the room and punched him in the head. You punched the president? No, he wasn't the president then. I punched him, he, he fought back, we wrestled around, it was a fight. A fight that you started, because David thought that I was having an affair. We get from context that uh, part of the reason that their marriage broke up is because Connie was probably spending a lot of time working on the campaign. Yeah, she wanted to be where her passion was. She wanted to be working for Whitmore. And I think... David thought she was having an affair. Yeah, David kind of saw the, the future president as the main reason why that was all slipping through his hands. And he goes to the... And they're in the Oval Office. I don't have time for this. Two minutes. Connie, Mr. President. Mr. President, Mr. President uh, Julius Levinson. Uh, David is... I told you wouldn't listen. No, you have to tell him David, tell him. He literally, David literally pulls up his little computer genius crap and shows him the countdown to when this attack is going to happen. And they have 27 minutes to get the fuck out of Dodge. Everybody's moving. The president, he's holding his daughter. They're putting him in a helicopter in Los Angeles. They're putting the first lady in a helicopter so she can get back to where she belongs. They're putting everybody on Air Force One. David gets sat down, strapped in, and he opens his laptop. And what happens? The countdown ceases. Time's up. Each warship opens up and everybody's in awe. It is a very pretty sequence. That's what Tiffany says. So pretty. She has no idea she's about to die. Yeah. And like it is, it's almost a very soothing sequence as the ships are all, like, all that music. Like mm-hmm. I love that. You just see the beams start going and everybody's like, oh, are we getting beamed up? Mm-hmm. No, bitch. <laughs> Each ship just shoots down a beam that annihilates everything in its path. The shot of the spaceship obliterating the White House is so iconic that it's it's been used in other movies. Yeah. It was used in The Spy That Shagged Me. (laughs) When when Dr. Evil's like, this is what I'm going to do. That's not a good Dr. Evil impression. But he's like, this is what I'm going to do. And it shows shows that clip where the beam comes down and blows up the White House. Or when in New York, when it blows up the Empire State Building mm-hmm. or the U.S. Bank Tower in Los Angeles. <laughs> the greatest description I've ever heard of it is it's like a straw coming down to punch the top of a plastic soda lid. Mm-hmm. Pow! To, and it completely burns down each city. Everything in its path. And, you know... Including Harvey Firestein. Yeah. <laughs> Jasmine and Dylan are stuck in traffic because they were going to go stay with Steve on the base. Police have called for a complete evacuation of Los Angeles County. People are advised to avoid the highways wherever possible. Oh, great. Now he tells me. (laughs) Jasmine and Dylan and Boomer. Boomer the dog. Boomer the golden retriever. Barely make it into this side tunnel. Yeah, because they're in a tunnel Mm -hmm. in, in Los Angeles and they barely make it off into this side hallway and like shut the door. And I love the breaking of the light bulb in there. Mm -hmm. And that ends our first act. Yeah. The whole day of July 2nd. Yes. When the invasion begins. Because the text, the title card comes up and it says July 3rd. And I'm like, this might as well just say act two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, 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 I really, I really like that structure. In the aftermath of the first strike, everyone's just trying to react. On Air Force One, Whitmore is beating himself up for not reacting soon enough. Which he should be. <laughs> 
Come on, Bill. Why? Because Bartlett would never have let those people die? Josiah Bartlett would have known what was up. (laughs) Would that not have been the best episode of The West Wing ever? The flight team at El Toro is preparing a counter-strike, and Steve and Jimmy are flying with the rest of the Black Knight squadron. Something you want to add to this briefing, Captain Hiller? No, sir. Just a little anxious to get up there and whoop E.T.'s ass, that's all. (laughs) Jimmy's trying to pep everybody up with a little speech before they go in. And, like, I'm just wondering what's going through Steve's mind. Like, as this is happening, as they're literally flying over the ruins of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I shouldn't have left her. Don't worry about it, big man. I'm sure she got out of here before it happened. I would feel so helpless in that moment. Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, I'm going to cry. I know. No, like, don't. Because literally all he can muster himself to say is, I shouldn't have left her. Oh, yeah. And then Jimmy's like, ah, she probably got out. You'll be fine. So we're learning that these ships have shields. Because they literally fire their missiles all at once, but not a single one of them gets through. <clears throat> nope. Like a ripple in a pond, each one of the <laughs> missiles hits the shield and it's just like, psh, psh, psh. <laughs> bitch. <laughs> you ain't getting us today. So they're getting their asses whooped. That's when Will Smith is like, oh, no, you did not shoot that green shit at me. Because then we realize the battleship produces thousands and thousands of tiny little battleships <laughs> that the aliens are in, which also have shields. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody's dropping like flies. Including Jimmy. Oh, Jimmy. Put your mask back on. That's an order, Marine. I can't breathe. Jimmy, you deserved better? Question mark? <laughs> I mean, you seem like a good I guy. Mean, he did exactly what Steve told him not to do and banked at an incredible speed, which allowed that alien to catch up to him and shoot his ass down. So. Wow. I, I'm impressed that you knew how exactly that went down. I mean, yeah. Like, I don't know what he was thinking. Where does Steve take off to? Into a canyon. The Grand Canyon. Yeah. In Arizona. He's got to shake two more alien ships that are on his tail. And I love that you can, in a fighter jet, just be from the Sierra Nevadas to the Grand Canyon in like five minutes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, the the Grand Canyon's just down the road a piece from here. Get in the fighter jet and we'll go take a picture. And this is one of my favorite sequences in the entire film is Steve trying to get away from these two alien fighters. Mm -hmm. And he's literally driving them through the Grand Canyon. He's swooping. He's diverting. And he's using every tactic possible to throw them off he forces them to crash because <laughs> he's like oh yeah why didn't i fucking think of this and lets the parachute go yep which then flies over their windshield he ejects and <laughs> so begins an odyssey for captain steve Miller, which has some of the greatest lines in the movie ah! Ah! That's That's get up! Get up! That's what you get! <laughs> look at you ship all banged up Who's the man? Huh? Who's the man? Wait till I get another plane. I'm lining all your friends up right beside you. He gets up on that alien spaceship, opens it up, and we get our first glimpse of what the harvesters look like. They're terrifying. I know. They look... That's not even what they look like either. It's just the biomechanical it's the, suit. It's the armor they have on, but yeah. even that is terrifying. Yeah. They got tentacles and everything. <laughs> That's the first thing you see when he opens up this ship is. <laughs> Like the wailing, wailing inflatable arm to men. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then it just kind of like growls and comes out of the smoke. He punches it right in the face. Yeah, he's welcome to Earth. He lights up that cigar. Now that's what I call a close encounter. <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines. I love that. I love that. I love close encounters of a third kind. 
back on Air Force One, the Secretary of Defense, Nimziki, played by James Raphorn from My Cousin Vinny. Yeah, I covered in episode one. He was George Wilbur in My Cousin Vinny, the tar expert. Yes. They're batting around the idea of a nuclear strike. Exactly. Can we just say, though, I, I just want to mention this. James Raphorn is always playing a <laughs> in everything. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. We won't say that. <laughs> James Rebhorn. How about walking phallus? Okay, James Rebhorn is always playing a walking phallus, despite the film that he's in. He is always some kind of asshole. I've never seen him play a character with any redeemable value. He's there for us as an audience to hate. Exactly. And rightfully so, because David walks by and he's like, you're going to blow up the planet? I don't think so. Exactly. Not my girlfriend, the planet. Nim- Nimziki wants to nuke them. He's like, I don't know what else to do, dude. I don't have any more options. Lies. <laughs> and we'll get back to that later. Evil Dumbledore lies. They're terrible, horrible, filthy Dumbledore lies. <laughs> and they're screaming at him and yelling, and this is where Julius jumps into full dad mode. They don't have to go. It can't be allowed. Shut up, Captain. Get him out of here. Hey, hey, don't tell him to shut up. You'll all be dead now if it wasn't my David. None of you did anything to prevent this. There's nothing we could do. To which General Gray's like, what were we supposed to do, man from New Jersey? We were unprepared for this. But what does he accuse them of knowing about? It's Julius that gets in Nimziki's crop. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, ah, don't get me unprepared. Come on, Julius. It was what, in the 1950s or whatever, you, you had that uh, spaceship? Dad, no, Dad. Yeah, that thing that you found in New Mexico. Dad. What was that? Not, not, not the spaceship. Was that Roswell? Roswell, New Mexico. Yeah. No, thing. you had the spaceship, and you had the bodies. They were all locked up in a in a bunker. <laughs> Where was that? David. I don't know. A- Area fifty-one, right? Area fifty-one. Whitmore's like, nah, man, there's no Area 51. Yeah, Whitmore's like, Area 51 is an, is a joke, it's an illusion, it's a myth. And then you just kind of see Nimziki get real timid <laughs> and shrink a little bit. Oh, excuse me, Mr. President. That's not entirely accurate. I love the look on Bill Pullman's face after he says that, just the... You gotta be <laughs> kidding. The eye roll, you've gotta be kidding me. And like, David going, wait, which part? <laughs> Back in Los Angeles, uh, Jasmine has commandeered a utility truck. <laughs> yes. And, I- including one of my least favorite movie tropes of all time, which is that whenever someone's trying to steal a vehicle, the keys are always inexplicably in the visor. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Who does that? Stop keeping your keys in the visor. That's a good way for someone to steal it. Exactly. But she's going around and she's uh, picking up other survivors. She's hitting wreckage with the car going, sorry. Exactly. What's Who's one of the people that she finds? She comes upon the remains of a destroyed helicopter. It was the helicopter carrying First Lady Marilyn Whitmore. And she finds the First Lady pinned under this helicopter door. Mm -hmm. She realizes that she's hurt pretty badly. She's Mm -hmm. got some pretty bad internal injuries sustained, most likely from the fall. It's time to check in with Steve. He's not doing great. This is, I love this sequence. He's dragging this alien through the desert attached to the parachute <laughs> and he's muttering to himself. He's mad, man. He's, he's, he hates life right now. You know, this was supposed to be my weekend off. But no, you got me out here dragging your heavy ass through the burning desert with your dreadlocks sticking out the back of my parachute. You gotta come down here with an attitude. Hacking all big and bad. And what the hell is that smell? After he freaks out, he sees this fleet 
of campers and mobile homes headed towards him. Deep, 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 deep. <laughs> Russell's camper pulls up alongside Steve. He's like, you need a lift, soldier? Like, and I love how when Russ stops his camper, everyone else stops their camper. Like, oh, the king has stopped moving. You know, like... <laughs> Steve's like, I saw an airbase not too far away from here. I was wondering if you could give me a ride. And he's like, it ain't on the map. And Steve's like, trust me, it's there. So now we are officially in Area 51. We've we've finally torn away the facade. We've torn away the illusion. This is the beginning of all these characters we've been following, arriving at the final destination for this movie. Where else better yeah. than Area 51, right? I love Area 51 just as a set in general mm-hmm. because it reminds me of the flight of fear at King's Island. You're so right. Yes. If you've never been to King's Island, it the flight of fear back when we were kids was this immersive roller coaster experience. Mm-hmm. It was an indoor roller coaster. It was all furnished like an airplane hanger on the inside. Mm-hmm. And you walked up into a spaceship. And it looks exactly like that in these shots, like when they're finally in Area 51. It's so freaky. I know. But, I mean, the best part of Flight of Fear was that you watched everyone take off on the roller coaster. And when the roller coaster came back, there was no one on it. Yeah, because they let them off in another room. (laughs) I'm like 12 years old, about to ride this roller coaster for the first time. A grown woman hopped out of line when she saw the coaster take off. Yeah. And then the other coaster comes back and it's empty. And dad leans down in my ear and he goes, everybody die. <laughs> Thanks, dad. Asshole. Still got on it. It was awesome. It, was, it is awesome. The president arrives at Area 51 and Major Mitchell, played by Adam Baldwin of Firefly fame. Yum. I know. <laughs> Is He's escorting him to the basement laboratory, and Whitmore is in a tizzy. Yeah, he's literally, why the hell didn't I know about this place? And Nimziki, stupid little weasel, it's like, two words, Mr. President, plausible deniability. And I'm like, bull fucking shit. Mitchell introduces us to Dr. Oaken. Can you paint a picture of Dr. Oaken for me? Dr. Oaken has not been outside in many years from the looks of him. He's got this long curly gray hair. He's unshaven. He's unshaven. He's got these huge glasses on. He just looks like you want me to paint the picture or do you want to paint the picture? I'm sorry. (laughs) Just kidding. He's obviously very focused on everything besides life. And <laughs> and he's getting visitors. Like, he's, he, yeah. Mr. President. Wow. Uh, this, what a pleasure. As you can imagine, they, they don't let us out much. He's literally being visited by the President of the United States, somebody he thought he would never meet in a million years, but... Dr. Oaken is obviously very excited because things are starting to happen for him because his life's work is finally being validated up to the point where the president is paying him a visit. Uh, Dr. Oaken is played by Brett Spiner. Oh, yes. From Star Trek, I believe. He's a reference. He's a sci-fi reference in himself. Yeah, he's I, I think it's Next Generation is is where he appeared. He played Data, the android aboard the USS Enterprise. Really? Yeah. Okay. He was also the bad guy in Master of Disguise. Oh, my God. <laughs> you just unlocked... <laughs> A deep memory. <laughs> I forgot about Master of Disguise haven't entirely, thought, first of all. Haven't thought about that movie in years. Oaken's here to provide us with m- another information dump. Yeah, he, I just love that line. I guess you're here to see the big tamale, huh? 
love that. He starts telling us everything that they've learned about the aliens so far. Mm-hmm. They've learned from examining the wreckage of the ship that crashed in the 50s. At Roswell. At Roswell. 1947. Whatever. <laughs> We learn that the aliens are very similar to humans in terms of what they can withstand, in terms of environment, and what they need to survive. They breathe oxygen. They have soft bodies like ours that require natural nutrients. Mm -hmm. This is why they're interested in Earth. They want to come in, drain us of all of our natural resources, and then move on. Classic alien motive in sci-fi films. And Oaken's excited because they've not been able to duplicate the tech since they found the spaceship. Mm -hmm. But since the aliens have been showing up, all of the technology has been turned on. (laughs) And Oaken himself is turned on in a way. (laughs) Yeah. He's really excited and Whitmore finds that distasteful. Yes. (laughs) The last 24 hours have been really exciting. Exciting? People are dying out there. I don't think exciting is a word I'd choose to describe it. He offers, uh, because they first go in and we see the ship that crash landed and we get to see everybody enjoying it and everybody's just kind of flabbergasted, you know, like, wow, it's all fucking true. It's all real. (laughs) We're literally here. Like, we've laughed at this for decades. I like that the fact that the harvesters don't have vocal cords. Oh my gosh. That they communicate through telepathy. And Oaken's just trying to make it apparent to the president, who's probably already aware (laughs) that the alien technology, we can't beat it. We don't know a way to beat it right now because they are literally light years ahead of us. But we do learn that because of their physical limitations, they can be killed. And Whitmore thinks that David just might be the man for the job Mm -hmm. when it comes to developing that answer. One of my favorite things is... The Freak Show. Oh, yeah. When they go in and see all the bodies. And this is our first real look. I love the design of the Harvesters. I love the... They've got those, you know, those big triceratopic heads, you know? (laughs) Their eyes are so menacing. They don't have mouths. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very... I wouldn't say it's a unique alien design as far as sci-fi culture is gone. I mean, they look... They look pretty much like aliens, but... I just love the attention to detail that the special effects artists put into these. That's Um, why they won an Oscar for it. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the doorbell is ringing upstairs. (laughs) Steve is inbound with a fleet of campers and an alien corpse. And I bet the men guarding the gate at Area 51 are like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Do you see all these people coming? Are we being invaded? Are we being invaded? By campers. Aliens in the campers. But they're not... (laughs) What if the aliens commandeered the fleet of campers? <laughs> I think we'd have a much better chance. This movie would be a lot shorter. <laughs> yeah. But they're not going to let him in. and They're not going to let Steve in with his alien in a parachute. I'm sorry, Captain. This is a restricted area. I can't let you pass without clearance. Okay. Come here. You want to see my clearance? <gasps> Maybe I'll just leave this here with you. Let him pass. Let him pass. Get the hell out of the way. Pulls that parachute up and there's that sticky, unconscious alien. Those guards probably their whole life have been like, oh, this is some mumbo jumbo. I do what I'm told. (laughs) And then Steve sticks an actual alien in their face. And they're like, Jesus, fuck, open the gate. (laughs) I love how Steve's like, get the hell out of my way. And who comes running out giddy like a kid in a candy store? (laughs) Dr. Oaken. He's literally coming out going, oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) 
Steve is rushing in with this alien on a gurney, and Dr. Oaken's main concern is the alien. They're rushing this thing into surgery, and in the meantime, we're at an intelligence briefing with the president and the general and Mziki, everybody. We're learning that based on the time it took to destroy each city and move on, everybody's going to be dead in the next 36 hours. If the gravity had not already been impressed upon you, I think that really does it. And I think that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie and the excitement that's going to follow. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? This is also where Steve learns. He asks the general for permission to return to El Toro. And the general gives him the sad news that El Toro has been leveled. Yeah. And that's where his future wife and child are supposed to be waiting for him. Mm -hmm. And he's devastated. But back on El Toro... Because that's where Jasmine has gone. Yeah. She's taken all these survivors out of Los Angeles and she's taken them to El Toro. She doesn't know where else to go. Yeah, because that's where Steve's supposed that's to be. That's where Steve is supposed to be. And then she sees that it's been leveled. So Jasmine and Steve both think the other one is dead. They set up a nice little encampment there. Yeah. For, for them and all the survivors with First Lady Marilyn Whitmore. And she and Jasmine are shooting the shit. And I love this scene. Mm -hmm. This is, again, I don't I, I don't know if this qualifies them for passing the Bechtel test or not. But I just love that there's a conversation between two female characters. Especially between the woman in the United States with the most status and an L.A. stripper. The way the war has torn so many lives apart. It's a, it's a very interesting conversation. <laughs> the first lady's like, so what do you do for a living? I'm a dancer. <sighs> Ballet. <laughs> no. Exotic. Oh. Sorry. Ooh. <laughs> and Jasmine's like, no. Exotic. <laughs> and Jasmine's not having it. She's like, it's good money. Exactly. Like I love that. It's, you know, sex entertainment positive. Mm -hmm. I love how she's just like, this is what I do. I'm not ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. I'm taking care of my baby, cool. you know? And Mrs. Whitmore is down with that. I like the cute moment where she has Dylan shake the first lady's hand. Dylan, come here. I want you to meet the first lady. Hello. Hi. I didn't know that you'd recognized me. Well, I didn't want to say nothing. I voted for the other guy. We've come to the alien autopsy scene. You ever dissected an alien, Gary Ann? No, but I didn't know it was supposed to just pop open like the turkey in Christmas Vacation. This is the most, I would say this is the most uncomfortable part of the movie for me to watch. It's so just unsettling and gross. It, it honestly, as a kid, when I watched this movie, I would always fast forward through it. <laughs> I would, because it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Oaken has a chubby. <laughs> And he's showing everyone how to slice this biomechanical suit off of this alien. And everybody's like, just like standing around. They're like, are we really doing this? <laughs> and they get it open and that thing flies open and it's so gross inside. Because you think, oh yeah, it's just a suit. No, no. <laughs> I don't know if this suit has been growing on this alien for a matter of decades or what. But it's their armor, you know, and it, it it's obviously armor that is designed to protect them in extraterrestrial environments, at least extraterrestrial to them. The suit has tendons and muscles and it's all yeah. sticky and goopy and blue. And they, they're just looking at it. And then all of a sudden, one of the techs looks over and they go, the arm is moving. Which, by 
the way, that fun fact, that tech that says that line, he was in uh, Silence of the Lambs, and he was also present for the autopsy scene where they opened that lady who has the bug. Were they bu- Frederica Bimmel? Yeah. He's the, he's the tech that explains, sometimes bugs and stuff get stuck under the soft palate. It's the same actor. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. That's funny. I know. I love that. He's just the autopsy guy. Yeah, and they finally get to the alien. Mm-hmm. And they, like, peel back that part of the suit. And Ogun's like, oh, yeah, look at it. (laughs) And we're just like, can you take a moment and stop? Do you need to be alone? Do you need to be alone with the alien, Doc? Like, they're they're looking at it, and that tech looks over, and he just goes, the arm is moving. And then that thing starts crawling out of the suit. (sighs) And Ogun grabs his head in pain. There's this horrible chirping noise happening. Yeah. And he can hear the alien's thoughts. And it's starting to control him and wreak havoc in the lab. He's grabbing his head in pain. The techs are all freaking out, trying to get out of the lab, which has been sealed for safety. Mm -hmm. And they can't get out because the alien has started to pull tubes out of walls because it knows where all of the mechanisms are because it can read everybody's mind. Everybody runs downstairs to figure out what the calamity is. They can't get into the lab, like you said, because it's been sealed. Mm -hmm. And the room is just filled with smoke, like like haunted house, dry ice. (laughs) Like they literally, that's probably literally what they did. They're like, Open up the trash can. (laughs) Dump that bucket. (laughs) Dump that block of ice in there, would you? And then we come to the jump scare. Whitmore is like peering through the glass and he's just looking for any sign of life in there. And then BAM! Dr. Oaken is slammed up against the glass with the alien's tentacles around his neck. The alien is using Oaken to communicate with the president. I'm shitting. <laughs> like, it's like this is this is this is the scene where everything slowed down a little bit. This mm-hmm. is where you can see the effects looking a little hokey. Yeah, but I don't care. The shot of the actual alien standing up mm-hmm. has me shook. Yeah, like he's like, "Release me now, now." Yeah, and I'm just like, "Uh," <laughs> like I'm 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 shook. I'm bothered. <laughs> Whitmore tries to negotiate a truce. Yeah, this is literally a rep and a leader trying to hack something out. He's like, we can find a way to coexist. Can there be a peace between us? No peace. Can we all get along? (laughs) The alien's like, no, girl, we're going to fuck you up. But it's especially scary because the alien seizes hold of Whitmore's mind and gives him a little uh, preview of coming attractions. Mm-hmm. And he, the president falls to the ground and Robert Loges turns to Adam Baldwin and goes, is that glass bulletproof? No, sir. <laughs> and, He's such a hot little action hero. Yeah, and just shoots that alien dead. Because mm-hmm. it ain't got its armor on. Mm-mm. It's naked. <laughs> it's a naked, slippery little alien. <laughs> and I like when Adam, I like what, listen to me, I like when Adam... <laughs> I like when, what's his name? Major Mitchell. I like when Major Mitchell goes through the broken glass up to that alien and the alien just looks at him forlornly and he just like shoots it three times in the face. And then Whitmore gets up and he's like, I've seen Jesus. (laughs) Basically, from the alien possessing his mind, envisions exactly what the harvester's purpose is. 
which is to exterminate. He is seeing visions of them going from planet to planet and sucking all the life out of each planet and just moving on to the next one. Like, they're literally their whole civilization is moving from mm-hmm. planet to planet. One of the details I love about how real this location feels is the fact that there's a break room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the Area 51 employees just have their Lunchable in the break room. I don't know. I don't know what they eat. Exactly. Their ramen or whatever. David is drinking his feelings in the break room and Connie comes to find him. And this is where we learn, you know, that they're both still feeling hurt about the way their relationship broke down. Connie feels like David kind of settled for a job as a cable repairman Mm. when he could have done so much more. Because he is. He's a literal genius. He's a genius. And he's frustrated with her because she never had enough time for him. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but the man did save the president of the United States by cracking that code. He did. Like, And Connie's just asking him, haven't you ever wanted to be a part of something special? David, you could have done anything that you wanted. Research, development. Oh, honey, I was happy where I was. Haven't you ever wanted to be part of something special? I was part of something special. Doesn't that just get your heart bone? It does get me. Yeah. Because he's legitimately upset that she said that. Normally, I would be like, oh, boo-hoo. He wanted more of her time or whatever. She's busy, but... He and I don't. He doesn't strike me as a needy sort of dude. Yeah. Just you know, he thought he felt that what was going on in her life was more important than him. Exactly. And I'm just like, would you two shut up and kiss and make up? Exactly. God, the world is ending. While they're dealing with the alien in the lab, Steve has stolen a helicopter to go and get jasmine i would i would want to know if my woman was out there yeah but he steals a military helicopter what the hell are you doing get out of there look i got something i gotta handle i'm just borrowing it no you're not sir do you really want to shoot me just tell him i hit you just tell him I hit you. <laughs> and then just takes off. And that soldier's like completely okay with it. He goes to El Toro and he gets Jasmine and, and the first lady and brings them back. Steve, <laughs> you're literally the best. What a hero. I know. He. J- I love how when he gets there, Jasmine goes, you're late. Well, you know no. I like to make an entrance. Yes. I hate them. Even they're in not, all of the horrible, they're cracking wise. They're, you know? they're nauseating. Because they're so happy to see each other. I know. It's so sweet. Mm. But all the smiles are about to stop. We must remember during this point, the first lady is very badly injured and has been without treatment for almost 24 hours. They get to the hospital and the doctors are trying to tell Whitmore, say goodbye. And by hospital, we mean the hospital on Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> what is it like to be that, that clinic staff? <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, continue. No, it's okay. It's just sad because the doc's like, she's not going to live much longer. Go get the kid and say goodbye. Yeah. It's one of the most wrenching sequences in the entire film. And also, Marilyn and Tom have not had screen time together. Yeah, that's For ins- the entire film. That's insane. He's saying to her, The doctors think that you're gonna be just fine. Liar. They're literally tearing. Trying not to sob. And, you know, they're hugging, they're kissing. It's over. And then they did the worst thing they could possibly do to us. Make him go outside and sit with Patricia. You mean us as an audience? Yeah, literal little Patricia. Is mommy sleeping now? 
automatically gets it and he just like embraces the kid and you're just like my god this is horrible how much longer can this last (laughs) ow stop that hurts we've reached it july 4th carrion tell me a little bit about how independence day 1996 starts (laughs) julius is in the hangar looking for david remember david's been drinking for quite some time (laughs) and then there's a crash What the hell are you doing? I'm making a mess. Yeah, this I can see. David stumbles through. He's grabbing things, throwing them, kicking trash cans. He is in a war dance jump. Like, he is not having it. He is raging drunk. And Julius is like, you're talking nonsense. You're drunk as shit. David, David, don't do this to yourself. Listen to me. Are you listening to me? Everyone loses faith at some point in their life. spoken to god since your mother died he's like listen you just got to keep going i remember you have love and and all of the usual platitudes and tropes <laughs> all of the cliches exactly and he's like now listen you got to get off the floor or what it's like i don't want you to catch cold i don't want you to catch cold oh. what is that what's the matter with you genius genius my dad Brain blast! (laughs) David gets it. He finally has an idea. And he's like running away from Julius, and Julius is like, what the the fuck? (laughs) What did I say? Yeah. He goes and wakes up the Wamu guy and tells him to get everybody downstairs. And everybody is sleepy as shit, and they're like, oh god, David's got a fucking idea. (laughs) He wants to demonstrate his idea to everybody there. We've got everybody gathered in the hangar with this alien spaceship. David begins this demonstration by almost getting someone killed with a stray bullet. (laughs) He sets a Coke can on the alien ship and instructs Major Mitchell, Adam Baldwin, to shoot at it. Do it, shoot it. Sir? Go ahead. Sir, my fault. It bounces off the shield, ricochets. Everyone's calling David an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I love, I love, I love Will Smith in that moment. Cause like he shoots it. He goes, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> he does some typing on the computer and he goes, okay, try it again. I would tell David to go fuck himself. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Sharpshooter Mitchell gets back up there and makes contact with the can. And everybody's slack-jawed. Oh my god. And General Gray is the most shook. He goes, How did you do that? I gave it a cold. I gave it a virus. Computer virus. David's done it! The case cracker! He has figured out a way to give their technology a computer virus. That will disable their fucking shields. This is your local average everyday Jewish cable repairman from Cliffside, New Jersey. (laughs) Saves the world. You know what's funny? Tom Cruise's character is from New Jersey and more of the world. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Trying to make New Jerseyans the heroes of alien invasions. Can we? I I get what you're trying to do for Jersey, but (laughs) it's still Jersey. (laughs) Um...
David explains that by giving this virus to the mothership, it will infect all of the smaller ships down below, mm -hmm. and they'll be able to organize a worldwide counterstrike with only a window of five or seven minutes. Yeah, because that's all the longer the virus can last. Before, before they figure it out. Like, he's, he's infiltrating the largest computer system ever to be devised by any living thing in all of recorded history. No big deal. According to the canon of this film. Do you think when he was developing that virus, like, Clippy popped up and was like, I can see you're trying to develop a virus to destroy an alien <laughs> ship. Would you like some help? Also, why did it take him, like, five minutes to do that? <laughs> he was ready to go with that virus by the time everyone had got down to the hangar. <laughs> David, you madman. So who doesn't like this scheme? Oh, who else would it be? Mr. Nimziki! <laughs> the Secretary of Defense is like, this is asinine. We have no idea that this is going to work. The word he uses is cockamamie. Oh, please. We don't have the manpower or the resources to launch that kind of a campaign. Not to mention that this whole cockamamie plan is dependent on a machine that no one in this world is qualified to operate. And Will Smith raises his hand and goes, hold up, my severe white homie. <laughs> I sure can. He's like, I know how to get away from these things. I've battled with them. I think I can handle their maneuvering capabilities. So they're going to send David and Steve up in the alien spacecraft to upload the virus to the mothership. Like, this is crazy, y'all. <laughs> they have literally... A very, very short window of time. This could all fall apart very quickly. But they're all going to die otherwise. Exactly. And they're, 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 so, like, this is, like, the one true solution that anyone in the world has come up with. It's a Hail Mary. Yeah. And they get on the wire, literally, in old Morse code. Because that's the only way they can communicate. Mm-hmm. Because the aliens have knocked everything else out. And the rest of the world's like, all right, America's got it. We're on it. We're going to be ready with the at the signal. Exactly. And this is the best because this is when, you know, everybody's ready to, everybody's getting ready to go. Whitmore takes Nimziki aside and fucking fires him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you love that? Because, like, Nimziki's like, I understand you are upset over the death of your wife, but that's no excuse for making another fatal mistake. No. The only mistake no. I ever made was to appoint a sniveling little weasel like you, Secretary of Defense. <laughs> Did you understand? However, there's one mistake I am thankful to say that I don't have to live with, Mr. President. Mr. Nimziki. You're fired. Nimziki, if he had just spilled the beans about Area 51 in the first place, we would not be in such a dire situation. Meanwhile, on the tarmac, a soldier with a megaphone has walked out and asked everybody that's out there, all the campers, everybody that came, you know, on the helicopter, anyone with flight experience, we would like you to come forward and volunteer your service. They're asking everybody about their experience. Russell stands up. And tells them he's a crop duster. Russell K, sir. <laughs> I love that when they first pipe up, he's like, I fly. I'm pilot. <laughs> You're, you've also got a blood alcohol level of like 0.8. <laughs> Don't drink and fly, kids. Exactly. But that's not all he says. On a uh, personal note, sir, I'd just like to add that um, ever since I was kidnapped by aliens 10 years ago, I've been dying for some payback and I... Just want you to know that uh, I won't let you down. This is probably very personal for Russell because mm -hmm. he was abducted by the aliens years ago. Mm -hmm. And they obviously traumatized the shit out of him. If Vietnam wasn't enough to traumatize the shit out of him and drive him into drink, the alien abduction had to be way worse. 
Elsewhere on the base, Steve and Jasmine are getting married. I know. Isn't that, like, so beautiful? Like, the last thing he wants to do before he could potentially... Die. Die in outer space. Is marry his one true love. This movie, and this is true, this movie was credited with the spike in sales in dolphin-themed jewelry. Because of the ring? Yes. <laughs> the, engagement, the engagement ring he buys for Jasmine is a dolphin encircling, like, a diamond. He had bought this a while back. He didn't buy this at, at, at Area 51, guys. Have you guys been to the gift shop? Have you guys been to the Area 51 gift shop? <laughs> David and Connie show up to be witnesses. Yeah. Dylan's there as the little ring bearer. <laughs> and while the preacher's talking, David and Connie are making eye contact. And they're just like, wow. They're sitting across the aisle from each other, and Connie can see that David still is wearing his wedding band. Yeah. And they take hands, and I'm just, but my heart. Okay, I'm taking a deep breath because we're at the speech. Guys. <laughs> This this is one of the best monologues in film history, in my opinion. At the beginning of the show, we talked about why you picked this. Because of the incredible solidarity and teamwork of humanity as people. Exactly. Working together to combat they... a greater foe. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. They said it. They said it. <laughs> I have I have goosebumps on my eyelids. Like <laughs> No, but like it, it. Bill Pullman does an amazing job mm -hmm. in that, and I, I think. Don't that, you just want to kick ass? Exactly. Like, doesn't it just it's make like, you want to jump up and scream? And like, yeah, that's just that's a good moment. It's a good moment that not only gives you appreciation and that fight and drive for not only Americans, but for like for all fucking human beings that are trying to survive. We all need to take better care of each other. What he does the president do, Carrie? He's He's not just going to go and sit in the control room. He follows up that incredibly classy move with another classy move. Mm. He starts getting into a jumpsuit because he's going to fly. And General Gray's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Pulling on his collar. Uh, Mr. President, I'd sure like to know what you think you're doing. But I think in that moment, he's remembering, I'm the president of the United States and all. But I think he remembers his the criticism that people had of him before all this started. Because what is he? He's a fighter pilot. He's a fighter pilot. He belongs in the air. So he's going to go serve his country in the best damn way he knows how. He's the leader our country deserves, exactly. damn it. <laughs> Meanwhile, 
Steve can't go anywhere without cigars. <laughs> Almost put a hex on the whole damn thing. <laughs> and remember how I said earlier that Julius is always puffing on a stogie? Exactly. He gives him his, he gives Steve his last two. I can't believe those two things enter, ended up intertwining. Like, that's such good writing. Yeah, I know. He reminds David they don't light him till the fat lady sings. Mm-hmm. Just like Jimmy. David is me throughout this whole scene. He's nervous because Steve can't get the ship out of the hangar at first. Yeah. Well, could you? (laughs) No, I'm not being rough on Steve. I'm just saying I would be David, just a ball of anxiety. Yeah. Well, you say we try that one again, huh? Yes, yes. Yes, without the oops. Yes, that. That away. When he finally gets it out of the hangar, Steve is so jazzed. He's like, look, no hands. <laughs> yeah. Steve. Because this is literally what Steve has wanted to do his entire life is fly into fucking outer space. Mm-hmm. And now he's doing it. And he's not just doing it. For, he's not doing it for NASA. He's, he's doing, doing it for humanity. Exactly. Eat your heart out, Neil Armstrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember at the beginning of the movie when the the spaceship rumbles up close to the moon and, like, Neil Armstrong's footprint dissolves? Yeah, that's one of my favorite images. Steve and David finally get up into the mothership because they this aliens see them coming and mistake them for one of their own. I wish I could... Again, this is another scene where I wish I could have seen this in theaters because the interiors of this spaceship are so vast and gorgeous. Yeah. And this is also where we realize that they're literally getting here just in time because the alien race is mobilizing. Yeah, by the hundreds of thousands lining up to get on ships. <laughs> and Steve... I love this line. Thousands of millions of them. What the hell are they doing? Looks like they're preparing an invasion. No shit, duty! <laughs> like, oh my god. On a laptop that's a million years old. <laughs> like, he literally opens it. <laughs> Good morning, Dave. That's a 2001 Space Odyssey reference. Ding! Got another one. HAL 9000. Gotta love it. Steve has worked the spaceship into one of the aircraft hangars that are that is in at the core of the mothership. David starts uploading the virus. Ding! Virus upload complete. On the ground, they get the signal when the virus has finished uploading and they are everybody's butthole is puckered when they fire this first missile. Who was leading Black Knight Squadron on the counterattack? President Whitmore. They fire that first missile. It bounces off the shield. It didn't work. General General's like, get out of there. Everybody immediately starts, you know, tearing away. The jets start tearing away. The president's not satisfied. Virus ineffective. Disengage. Get your people out of there. Disengage. Rear flank, follow suit. Hold on, command. I want another shot at it. Sir, I strongly recommend you disengage. Eagle one. Fox three. But he's the president. Yeah. He can do what he wants. Bartlett's gonna Bartlett. Like Let Bartlett be Bartlett. That, <laughs> let, me, let, let Whitmore be Whitmore. Exactly. <laughs> but he fires that second missile. And it connects. It fucking hits the ship. They did it. That is one of the biggest releases for me in the movie. You're just like, God damn it. Yes. <laughs> Finally. I object. I, obje- <laughs> I object. 
to the graphic use of the word release. <laughs> I'm sorry, it is. Like, there's so much tension up until that point, and you're just like, thank God. Like, I can't believe they got a hit. The rest of the squadron starts firing on the ship, just unloading. And just literally, it's just blowing the fuck up. Meanwhile, on the mothership, David and Steve are trying to escape. And they're trying to get out of the hangar, and he just can't get out of there. And then, oh, the little alien secretary inside the hub <laughs> <laughs> with her nails and her phones is like, mm, and is like clicking buttons. They manually open the shades on the front of the spaceship, mm. and like Steve and David literally have to dive on the floor and hide. Mm. Back on the ground, the counter-strike is going as planned, mm. but the problem is, is that everybody's run out of missiles. Yeah. Yeah, and they, and now the ship has started to open up like it did at first mm -hmm. to blow up all those buildings. They're preparing to fire their primary weapon. And let's take it out before it takes us out. I love that line. I'll show you my primary weapon. Shut up. <laughs> Bad news is no one's got any missiles left, but da 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 da, here comes Russell. Sorry, I'm late, Mr. President. Kind of got hung up back there. Pilot, you armed? Armed and ready, sir. I'm packing. So the super duper bad news is Russell's got a missile left, but it's jammed. And and you can see there's a few seconds where Russell is contemplating this. And he's looking at a Polaroid of his children. Yeah, that he put on his yeah, on his dash. And... On the flight console. Yeah. And you can see him make the decision in his mind. And he says into the comm, he goes, Do me a favor. Tell my children I love them very much. And instantly, we know what's going to happen. Yeah. It's one of the greatest send-offs in film. Russell starts flying his plane towards the alien primary weapon. <laughs> yeah. And he positions himself underneath. And everybody's just like, good luck, buddy. Yeah. Godspeed. Yeah. The aliens start to turn on the weapon. It's beaming up. Flies that plane up into their tractor beam mm -hmm. and it obliterates that entire battleship. And that's and it just starts to fall slowly out of the sky. Everybody freaks the fuck out. They did it. The Battle of Yorktown. <laughs> 1781. Like, that's the vibe I get from that. And I'm just like, <laughs> hell yes. And you, and then you start to see, you know, this montage. The ships are going down all over the world. You can see people partying in Australia, Egypt, Africa, Israel. Europe, Israel. Yeah, all over the world. You can see, I love all of those shots of just the ba of the battleships in front of famous landmarks, just destroyed. Russell did it. He saved the day. Yeah, and General Gray, that because General Gray gets on the wire after he does that, and he's like, tell him how to bring those sons of bitches down. And Miguel finally has a reason to be proud of his dad. Exactly. Because, like, Major Mitchell turns to him and goes, What your father did was very brave. You should be proud of him. I am. Crying. I know. I'm... I'm Sorry. Yeah. Oh, suck it back. Suck it back. Suck it back. Yeah. Okay. It feels like the movie's over, but there's still the matter of Steve and David being trapped in the mothership. They're still in the mothership. I call this scene 
the fat lady sings. Yes, <laughs> like I love it, it. If I were naming scenes for the DVD menu, that's what I would call it. We don't line up to the fat lady sings. Steve lights up the cigars uh, because they're getting ready to get the fuck out of Dodge. And you know, at this point, they don't even know if this has worked. Yeah, they have no way of knowing if what they've done up here has made an impact on Earth. Which it so has, guys. Just you wait. <laughs> but. What we haven't mentioned is that another thing David and Steve have in tow on this alien ship is a nuclear missile. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to fire it right before they leave, and they're going to have 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Don't you think that's cutting it a little bit too close? Connie, when she was on, when they were on the ground, she's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're all Connie. Yeah, we are all Connie in this moment. They're just like, fuck it. They're done. They open that windshield. <laughs> they're smoking those cigars. And they're just like, hey. All right. Look at us. Take a look at the earthling. Goodbye. I'll take care, all right? None but love for you. None but love for you. You need to have any clue what's about to happen to him. Oh, not a chance in hell. Good night. They detach from this dock and they start flying. They fire that missile. Peace! (laughs) And they've got 30 seconds. Alien ships are chasing them. Pew, 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 pew. There's so many funny lines during this scene where they're trying to escape. But the one I'm going to call out and you're looking, you're looking at me. The most iconic (laughs) because Jeff Goldblum is the crown jewel of all things 90s. If you remember from Jurassic Park, when they're running from the T-Rex, he's in the back of the Jeep yelling, must go faster, must go faster. <laughs> and in Independence Day, when they're fleeing the mothership, he's looking at Steve and going, Uh-oh, they're closing up on us. Is that closing? Shut up, shut up, shut up! Must go faster, must go faster, must go faster. Go, 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 go! They barely escape. Literally. With a huge monumental explosion. They land in the desert, just outside of the area where the base is. Yeah. Jasmine and Dylan, Connie and Patricia, everybody. Julius, the president. Yeah, they're all rushing out. And they're they're going out. And it's one of the best sequences in the film. I know we've said that like three (laughs) or four times. But this is a great movie. You just see them walking towards them. They're all like cocksure and like. Oh, yeah. They look like action heroes. They do. And they are. (laughs) And they got the great Independence Day theme playing in the background. They're smoking those cigars. Connie leaps from the Jeep. Positively leaps from the Jeep (laughs) to go and embrace her ex-husband. Jumps into his arms. Who has just saved the world? How hot is that? I know. (laughs) How did she not take him right there in front of her boss? Exactly. (laughs) I love Tom in this moment. The president literally walks up to David. David. Not bad. Thank you, Mr. President. Not too bad at all. Not bad! (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me? He saved your ass! He saved your ass! Steve goes over, he picks up Dylan, shows him the giant smoldering heap of alien ship. Yeah. And you can you can see starting to come out of the sky are the remnants of this mothership flying down to the earth. And it looks really cool because you're out in the middle of the Nevada desert. If I were six, I would totally be into this. With all this pale blue sky. Didn't I promise you fireworks? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. End credits. That's how it ends, folks. The, like, the font's all Star Wars-y. Literally... That 
theme starts when the credits play and you're like, this could be the end of a Star Wars film. This film came out in a pre-9-11 America, mm-hmm. which I mean, different world almost. Oh, it was, it was completely a different world. And I think, you know, people like to associate other events like JFK or, or World War II as the end of the Age of Innocence. Mm-hmm. But I mean, 9-11 really did kind of rip the Band-Aid off of this we are one, buy the world a Coke and live in harmony, you know? <laughs> Yeah, all that crap, because what 9-11 did to America was instill this fear Mm -hmm. in everyone. It was a terrible event, something that we will never forget. But ever since 9-11, we've lived in a state of fear and heightened security and toxic patriotism. Fear of the other. Yeah, fear of anything that we don't understand. We don't understand or that we don't know. And this film came out before all of that happened, about five years before all of that. You get up to the late 90s, everybody's worried about Y2K, and is the millennium going to mean the end of the world? And I think this movie came out at a very opportune time to, I wouldn't necessarily say prepare people Mm -hmm. for what's going to happen, but to give them a taste of the worst case scenario in a time where everyone was afraid of change. I agree. And I think Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin did a fantastic job in getting this movie's message across, which is that we as humans can do fucking anything if we just listen to each other and put our minds to it. Right. I think that's the greatest message you can take away from it. Of course, I love the American vibe and aspect the movie brings, but I think that it goes a long way in championing the idea of a greater humanity and a greater consciousness that there are elements beyond our control in the universe, you know, in order to survive, to be free from annihilation, like President Whitmore says in the film, you have to work together. I agree with everything you said. Um, What about you? When I think about this movie, I think about it in terms of the film aspect and film history. This is easily one of the greatest alien films of all time. Mm -hmm. There are many, there are many like it, but this one is mine. (laughs) You know, there's Close Encounters. Aliens is one of the greatest thrillers that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But this one, like you've said, there's a community feel to this Mm -hmm. movie. You know, we all have to hold hands and join together. This movie paved the way for many other movies that portrayed disaster that were soon to come, like Titanic and Armageddon. It created a generation of audiences that was primed and hungry for those full-scale disaster films and would also prime us as a younger generation. It would create an environment where we were hungry for adaptations of superhero movies. Endgame just came out, like, not very long ago at the time of this recording. And it has... It has definitely broken all the records. Lots of high-intensity action scenes and lots of special effects. Okay. All right, guys. Woo, we got through it. I mean, as far as what Independence Day means to millennials, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we kind of covered that. Yeah. But I think it's always just been something definitely, I mean, you've got four years on me. I'm sure it's something that you thought was kind of spectacular as a kid. Mm -hmm. It's another movie that I like that our parents enjoyed mm-hmm. in their time. And I mean, this is at a time when they they were, you know, full-fledged adults. They mm-hmm. were both just turned 30. And now we're full-fledged adults. Yeah. And we're kind of living <laughs> with the current state of our nation. Mm-hmm. We're kind of living in a 
an air of disillusionment. Mm. And it's nice to revisit films like this that remind you that we're all supposed to take care of each other and kick ass together. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Thanks, everybody, for sticking around for our rebroadcast of the Independence Day episode, which was, again, the second episode we ever recorded on Kicking and Streaming. That was way back in 2019. And we sound a little better now, and uh, we're probably going to sound a little bit better, hopefully, two years from now. So thank you, everybody, for revisiting that with me. It was truly like looking at my middle school yearbook photos. Like, that was the amount of cringe. Next week, we're returning to our regularly scheduled programming with Ross's first pick of War of the Worlds for his birthday month. And it's going to be a great time, everybody. We've already recorded it, and it's it, it's a good episode. It's got some great laughs and some great energy. Check that out next week, guys. In the meantime, you can go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. That's K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. Or you can write to the show at kickingandstreamingpodcast at gmail.com. And that's with an and, not with an ampersand. And don't forget, in these birthday times, please be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Don't forget to recommend us to your friends and your family. And to pop on over and leave us a review if you haven't done so yet. All right, this is weird without Ross here, but he, he could not be here. He's he's trying to move, so I'm just going to say bye and sorry, Ross. <laughs> Gothic news, Gothic news, Gothic news.